Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take an unflinching look at two of the major sources of anxiety in modern life, Donald Trump, of course, and the climate crisis, and some of what we can do to find a degree of calm. And speaking of mental health, stay tuned at the end of the show for an exciting major announcement. I have been working on a new plan with the help of the members, and I'm just about ready to put that into action, so I'm going to be telling you all about that today. Now, onto the show. Clips today come from Hidden Brain, The Chauncey DeVega Show, Warm Regards, The Trump Cast, Off Kilter, Earth Feels, and Inquiring Minds. What does terror management theory predict about the kind of leaders that we are drawn to, Sheldon? Yes, terror management theory predicts that uh, when existential anxieties are aroused, uh, that we are more likely, and when I say we, I mean all of us, are more likely to embrace what the sociologist Max Weber called a charismatic leader. So... In the aftermath of September 11th, we argued, based on our studies, that it was our own existential anxieties that attracted Americans to President Bush. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. And then... If we fast forward to 2015, 2016, and um, Donald Trump declared his candidacy for the presidency, uh, saying, look, uh, illegal swarms are coming over the southern border. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. Terrorists are going to come into the United States and they're going to kill us. And he said, look, I am the only one who can keep you safe. I'm going to make America great again. So we did studies in 2015 and 16. American respondents reminded of death uh, were more supportive of President Trump, now President Trump, and said they were more likely to vote for him uh, when they were reminded of their mortality. When it became evident that uh, Donald Trump was running against Hillary Clinton, uh, we found uh, the respondents preferred Clinton to Trump in a psychologically benign state of mind. But if they were reminded of their mortality first, their enthusiasm and support uh, for President Trump was substantially increased. And then, moreover, we did other studies where we showed that just asking an American to think about a mosque being built in their neighborhood or an immigrant moving into their town uh, that that was sufficient to make unconscious death thoughts come more readily to mind. And that, in turn, increased support for now President Trump. And this is important because uh, President Trump doesn't have 
death reminders in his rallies. And so one might wonder, well, how is this of practical significance? Well, the fact is that he doesn't have to. Just keeping immigration and terrorism and the idea that the Chinese and every other country, for the most part, are a mortal threat to us by virtue of their aggressive trade practices, all of that, whether the president is aware of it or not, serves to maintain a high level of death anxiety, and that in turn serves to maintain greater support for a charismatic leader. There seems to be so much in the current political moment that reflects some of the themes that we've talked about. Uh, When I think about partisanship, for example, I think of people who want to stick to their tribe because the tribe has long offered protection against death and other threats. Absolutely. We are fundamentally tribal animals for better and worse. And what's problematic and potentially catastrophic, not to sound too histrionic, but we're at a point uh, where we have lost track of our overriding commonality um, as Americans. And uh, this does run the risk of our partisan identities, if push comes to proverbial shove, taking precedent over what's best for us as citizens of the country itself. What are some of those primitive forces? I'm thinking specifically about Trump's rally in El Paso. The lying, we know he lies. The stochastic violence, the scripted violence. We had one of his Trump hooligan supporters attack a reporter. We had that man in the van. And isn't it something, too, going back to social pathology, how all these things have been forgotten? You just had a Trump supporter try to literally launch a decapitation strike against the Democratic leadership of this country. Blow people up. It's not even in the news anymore. You had a man go and shoot up a newspaper, kill all those people. Not in the news anymore. Las Vegas, 500 people hurt, 50 people at least dead. Not in the news anymore. How is this happening? We've lost the capacity to remember? Well, human beings are malleable creatures. We adjust to all kinds of levels of pathology. Why we actually live in a pretty violent world. I teach my students that the world starts in a place of violence and we're trying to mitigate that and know that we can change the situation. We're very adaptable. So that's how you can have states of immense pathology and all kinds of atrocities can happen. And yet the population adjusts. And as you fall into a more pathological state, you actually feel that things are less wrong or less awry because your ability to recognize that something is a problem also goes with your falling more deeply into a problem. The physiological response to this type of stress and anxiety and threats of violence, what is this doing to people's bodies, to their brains? Well, we know that stress levels are the highest in our memory, higher than any time since World War One. So if you think of all the crises that have happened in between, we're actually in a worse state than all of those. And we know that anxiety levels are up to 70% higher than two years ago. So those are American Psychological Association and American Psychiatric Association studies. So we know that the public mental health is deteriorating. We can see it also in drastically increasing 
gun murder rates, for example, or epidemics of suicide that we're going through right now. But we habituate to those things. And so we become more numbed to the stress levels, if you will. So a couple things happen in that we are jumpier and more anxious, looking for comfort. The more the population is suffering, for example, false beliefs that Mr. Trump propagates in order to assuage the population will be more convincing. So they will be more vulnerable to believing fake news, lies, and and the rest of the population becomes exhausted. So you are less likely to be worked up about something that would have outraged you in the past. Supporters, they will become more and more entrenched in his belief system and believing him. He has conditioned them to believe him and nothing else, not even their own eyes and ears. Since they are vulnerable start, in a sense, you can say that their own individuation or their becoming fully human has not been allowed because of adverse circumstances. And that's when someone like Mr. Trump has a great advantage because he can tell people what they wish to think. They will believe him, not because what he says rings true, but because they need to believe. They need to depend on someone. They need to be able to trust that someone is bigger, stronger, and more capable than they. And who would proclaim that they are more capable? It's only the people who are looking to manipulate and deceive. So it forms a biosis. Our final interview is with Renee Lertzman, who works to understand the psychology of how we deal with environmental issues. Her words are especially useful in this time of shared anxiety and concern and uncertainty, and her message is one that gave me a lot of encouragement that what happens next is not entirely out of our control. I'm a psychosocial researcher, and my background is in psychology. I'm not a cognitive scientist. Um, what I'm really focused on is putting, putting in the center of our work on climate change advocacy, communications, education, really putting in the center of that the need to understand at a very deep and fundamental level what is the psychological dimension of this work. And for me, that relates in part to how people make decisions, but it's much more than that. And a lot of what I'm doing um, is helping people sort of look at how climate change is more than just um, a cognitive and behavioral issue. It's an existential issue. And fundamentally, when we learn and become aware of the implications of climate change, it really is about, at, at the basic level, rethinking and reimagining who we are and who we are in relation to others and to our place and, you know, um, how we live. And my sense is that we haven't yet really come to terms with what that means um, as far as how we can engage and, and, you know, do all the things that we really need to be doing right now, which is igniting uh, creative and imaginative responses to the issue. 
So, you know, I'm really interested in exploring how do we take this recognition that um, the, the issue and the science of um, what we know about climate change and the human impact on the environment, how do we actually work with people in a way that supports, you know, our, our abilities to, to make the right decisions? And, and I think it's really important that we look beyond just the cognitive, that we, we really have to look at emotional dimensions of this and the kinds of anxieties that this brings up for people and really, you know, really looking at what happens with anxiety, right? I mean, anxiety is, is often paralyzing and, and immobilizing, right? And the other, you know, primary kind of um, issue or challenge with this topic is the enormous sense of powerlessness and lack of efficacy that people experience. And th that may not be the reality, right? But what, what is very easy, it's very easy to go to that place of people sort of um, opting out of any kind of involvement, cognitively, emotional, and otherwise, because it really does seem so big, right? It seems so vast. And the tendency in the climate kind of space um, is to then simply kind of resort to either more alarming news, more um, clarification of the science, demystifying of the science, or focusing only on solutions. You know, what can I do? And let's make it more concrete. And here's what you can do. And what's happening is there's a whole area that's being, you know, vital area that's being missed, that's being completely bypassed, which is really looking at, you know, how people can come to terms with these issues in ways that um, are actually uh, likely to lead to a shift in what we do and, you know, our actual practices, right? So there's sort of like, um, you know, if you think about a triangle, you know, there's the raise awareness is kind of one part of the triangle. Raise awareness and make the urgency real, make it felt, make it really um, known. And then there's the other side of the triangle, which is here are the solutions, right? There are solutions. Don't feel powerless. Don't feel overwhelmed. Here are solutions. And what I'm trying to do in my work is say, well, actually, there's a place right between where those meet and where those meet is the human kind of psyche, right? Where, where those meet is the the way that humans process challenging, complex information that often that, you know, that can raise really hard dilemmas for people, really hard conflicts. And, and I feel, you know, really strongly that it's that area, it's that level of insight that the climate community needs to understand like right now. So, you know, that's my sense of urgency. As in like right? this week, As in this week, everything that's happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why I got in touch with you because I, I, I'm here in the Netherlands. I'm speaking, you know, to pretty large audiences that, you know, people are totally bewildered and hungry to understand how do we motivate and how do we activate people to take care of ourselves and our planet. And it's very, it's very, um, it's encouraging and it's moving to see that people are really like, okay, ready, right? Like people are really wanting to understand this. Um, and the, the fact is, is that the psychology of climate change 
one, you know, it's still kind of in its early stages, right? And it's clearly ramping up. You know, there's all kinds of initiatives and books and and projects coming out, but it's kind of in the early stages. And and I, I'm, you know, sometimes I feel like we think we know what it is, and it's really not necessarily the whole picture. And what I mean is, like, we tend to think the psychology of climate change is that it's too abstract. It's too far in the future. It's, um, you know, it's, it's too systemic, right? It's like our brains, our feeble brains can't process, can't it, process yeah. it. And mm -hmm. I, and I do actually challenge that in a, in a pretty big way. You know, humans have imagination and we have enormous capacity to imagine all kinds of things. So it's, I really think it's less about the cognitive shortcomings and it's much more about the what's what I call affect or emotional dimensions that that actually neurologically make it hard for us to take take in and learn right because when when we experience um, you know anxiety and some fear and maybe some shame or guilt that could come up with these issues it it literally impairs our cognitive faculties I mean we know this now from neuroscience so. So that puts us in a very uh, challenging position as educators and um, advocates. If you had one uh, sort of overall message for the environmental um, community, and I'm thinking of like Sierra Club and 350.org and the major environmental organizations that um, sort of control the conversation in some ways, what what's the sort of message that they should be saying right now and now that Trump is president and now that we have um, maybe a little bit different setting for our work? Mm -hmm. They should be leading with a message that is ideally demonstrating tremendous empathy and understanding of where people are at, including their experiences of um, feeling defeated, uh, feeling despair, feeling sad, feeling confused, to be able to address that and acknowledge it head on and not be afraid to do that, to position themselves and their roles as entities that are about supporting people and, um, and again, you know, cultivating the conditions for people to engage and experience themselves as being part of something much bigger than just ourselves as individuals. And then frame the work as, you know, our opportunity to be magical. You know, our, our opportunity, humans are, you know, kind of respond to the, uh, the, the challenge and the, the opportunity to kind of show up and, and rise above. And, and it's not just Americans that have that, right? So... So to frame it in terms of this is our moment, this is our time to really, this is what power looks like. We're redefining what power looks like right now, and you are part of that. So that's the message I would want to see coming out. But you, you can't get to that message unless you also acknowledge the other side, which is what I mentioned before. You can't, you can't skip that and you can't bypass that. You've got to create, you know, more of what can be called a human-centered or, a, you know, an empathy kind of centered approach because environmental issues are really emotionally complicated 
and and that's the one thing that you know we don't seem to have fully understood. These are very emotional, uh, complex issues for anyone of any age to come to terms with, and everyone has their own coping mechanisms, right? We all know people in our lives who demonstrate incredible resilience, who, you know, those same people who are working in these organizations or they're entrepreneurs or they're, you know, housewives, whatever people are doing who, who seem to um, demonstrate, you know, a lot of resilience, a lot of ability to kind of stay engaged, stay active in the face of what's going on. But what we need right now is to really step that up. You know, we really need to step up the, the dial up the compassion and when I say that, you know, I don't mean be soft and, and you know, fuzzy and touchy-feely. I just mean be human, you know, just be human and say, look, this is, this is hard, this is scary, but that's why we exist and that's why we're here and we can't do this without you. And even though you might feel powerless and you might feel like things are way bigger, um, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like to really address explicitly the paradox of our situation. That's how they will connect with people. And that's how they will bring more people on who don't necessarily see themselves as belonging or, you know, being a quote unquote environmentalist. It's time to really explode those barriers that keep people from, you know, getting involved, which often have to do with identity, right? So I really see these organizations as being in such a such a a, um, a role and a position right now that um, is so critical, and um, you know that's how I see it needs to go. And I honestly think that if it doesn't go that way, we really are in for a much harder time. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon. But now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And best of the left listeners, get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed, R-E-E-D, and use the promo code LEFT. You might look at someone when they're under a certain kind of pressure, like when they've been accused of something yes. or insulted. How do they react to that? Give me one more, apart from that sort of rigidity and also the reality distortion. You know, I never met with any Russians. What about the demonization of other views that, you know, if mm -hmm. you disagree with me, you're a pedophile or you're ugly or you're uh, on a witch hunt or you're, you know, mm -hmm. 
partisan. Well, or or fake news. He oh, can't news. Right. deal with facts as they are because they are so painful for him. Mm-hmm. He just like the prior traits that he has shown his inability to consider even the possibility he might have any flaws. And so any news or any reporting, simply restating of facts that might negate that yeah. uh, are seen as an affront. Right. And since he ha- always has to be on guard mm-hmm. that these would be reported or people would be after him, which is how he would experience this. Mm-hmm. He takes on traits of paranoia and, and that starts to fall into false beliefs mm. that one is being persecuted, one is being victimized, and the world is out to get him, and therefore he needs to fight back, fight for his survival. So it actually makes him a very dangerous person to deal with, because uh, what may be a normal interaction could be seen as an assault mm. that he needs to fight back on. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much he may be the primary perpetrator in other people's eyes, in his experience, he is being victimized and merely defending himself. I remember also in the video, you say susceptibility to false beliefs, paranoia. I think you even mentioned conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And conspiracy theories, I wouldn't think would have like some kind of diagnostic power. You sort of think of them as like some people's bad habits that or some people have fallen under the spell of disinformation and suddenly they're mm-hmm. anti-vax or, you know, believe that Procter & Gamble has the sign of the beast on it. And mm-hmm. you don't know quite why some people's brains get seized by that. But, you know, I have some superstitious mm-hmm. beliefs that, you know, and lots of people use hex signs and dowsing rods. But why is a belief in a conspiracy theory about JFK's assassination, say, or the QAnon gibberish? Why is that in particular a possible sign of incapacity? Yes. So you, uh, you're you absolutely right in that you have to look at it in cultural context. Hmm. A whole culture can believe something incredibly superstitious. But if the whole culture believes it, then uh, the, the individual who espouses that belief is actually normal. And, and someone who doesn't espouse that belief may, be, may not be normal. Uh, so you do look at it in cultural context. Um, but we we have kind of a bifurcation in the culture. And mm-hmm. so uh, so this false information and conspiracy theories that are out there promoted sometimes even as news mm-hmm. and creating a cultural bubble for a large segment of the population, it could be seen, well, it has to be seen kind of in the context of that. Mm-hmm. How does a person get drawn into those beliefs? Is it the commonly held belief among all their peers? Or are they being drawn into it like being drawn into a cult? It could signal some psychological vulnerabilities. Now, some of the theories that the president has espoused are, in fact, rather extreme uh, fringe conspiracy theories. And yeah. so that is an indication that it's it's more of a psycholo- an individual psychological disposition rather than a cultural consensus. But it is very concerning at a cultural level and a societal mm-hmm. level that such a large segment is uh, espousing these beliefs. And this is one of the reasons why I raised 
Mr. Trump's presidency as as a consequence mm-hmm. of the worsening of our collective mental health as a society. I mean, I was thinking that, uh, you know, I've thought to myself sometimes that the spread of disinformation is something like the spread of smallpox blank blankets can infected with smallpox mm-hmm. on populations without immunity that, you know, just to put it very schematically, yes. the Russians dropped a lot of incredibly alluring, arousing conspiracy theories and disinformation on us, blanketed social media with us with it. And if you didn't have an immunity to it for whatever reason, yes, that's right. You got the thing and, you know, sort of are mentally are impaired now by those beliefs and they make life harder. Yes, that's right. It's just like bad air. If you breathe enough of it, you'll develop asthma. Yes. Even if you didn't have the genes for it. Yeah. For example. Yeah. I'm just I'm also surprised that so many people had the vulnerability and I'm not I'm I'm interested culturally in how we got so mm-hmm. vulnerable to conspiracies, but then how so many of us who voted against Trump didn't have that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I somehow sometimes I think we were like tender or softened or made more vulnerable or something by digitization, which just overwhelmed people's faculties to process mm-hmm. information and led some of them to fall for weird ideas. Yes. And, and there have been a lot of psychological techniques that have been employed, either through marketing or even in politics, really, mm-hmm. that uh, use our psychological knowledge to, in fact, destructive ends, to make people more impulsive, more emotional, in order to buy uh, things that they do not need or to vote for people who act against their interests. So these are psychological tactics that that we have observed being used in the public sphere for decades. And so what I am recognizing all the more is the importance of our societal duty mm-hmm. as mental health professionals to hmm. point out these noxious factors and to arm people against being so vulnerable to these uh, manipulations, if you will. So it has been going on for a while. This is the way people were conditioned to respond more by emotion and Mm. uh, jingoism or what is simple to understand and sounds true rather than critical analytical thinking. And there's a deliberate engineering that has happened for at least a couple decades that I have observed. And that is the reason why I've been concerned about public mental health for quite some time, as I said, for a couple decades. And having the presidency of a mentally impaired individual, mm-hmm. uh, that so many people would have been drawn to such an individual speaks to the poor state of public mental health that we mm-hmm. have had. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole other. No, no, no. It's totally, topic. totally relevant because on the last show uh, with, I don't know if you know, um, Professor Kevin Cruz at Princeton, he teaches history. We were talking about approaches to the history of the last, say, five years that, you know, constant question of did this current flare up of racism and hatred and violence and misogyny and, you know, systemic violent misogyny. Did those things, did we all kind of go crazy at once and become rioters? Like it didn't grow out of the years before it? Or is this a natural progression of something sort of in the American um, spirit? And I think he and I, you know, disagreed about this. And we've seen some Republicans, we've had them on the show, who've changed parties and fallen out with the Republican Party. And the question is, was the party hijacked, you know, by people that are seemingly mentally incapacitated? 
Or did it always have a strain mm-hmm. of mental incapacity? Is that, as a kind of cultural forensic psychiatrist, is that a question you would be interested in? Believe it or not, I did an empirical study on this. Wow. <laughs> All right, please. Um, in fact, a colleague insisted that we study political parties as a factor in violence rates. And violence rates hmm. uh, in a society are a good barometer for a society's state of collective mental health. Mm, mm. And um, I I was initially opposed to it because I didn't want it to appear partisan or uh, political. Uh, we were simply public health. We were doing public health re- research, environmental conditions that would increase or decrease violence. Well, I mean, the, uh, the results turned out to be spectacular. In fact, when one party... Uh, for 110 years of our nation's history, mm-hmm. uh, there would there was a consistent pattern of whenever one party was elected, murder and suicide rates would double, mm. and when the other party was elected, they would have. And this was far beyond any of the effects of economic policies or the wow. rise and fall of GDP uh, changes in GDP. Uh, all economic factors could be controlled, and there was still an incredibly strong effect of party on rates of violent death. Wow. Uh, there were only two exceptions, and two exceptions were more illuminating okay. than uh, than um, providing exceptions mm-hmm. to the party uh, party factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they were presidencies where either the uh, the presidency had no way of uh, getting their uh, policies instituted. This was before Obama, by the mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, the the individual decided to adopt uh, the principles and policies of the other party, mm. and uh, mm. those were the only exceptions. So, so in fact, uh, the trend was quite consistent for 110 years. And you might imagine which party. <laughs> I was going to say, Dr. Lee, right? You're leaving a mystery at the center of this. But because you've said you can imagine, I'm going to leave it to Trumpcast listeners to imagine it. I, I've got to look at that study. You know, what somehow, if you can imagine, I feel a little bit optimistic hearing that. Yes, there's every reason for optimism. In fact, violence is the end product of a long process. And we mm-hmm. know how it occurs. We have abundant information yes. on how to prevent it. And it is highly preventable. It also seems to suggest that when the country is moving in, let's call it the wrong direction, ideologically, that it's counteradaptive for the whole society. That in other yes. words, our beautiful system of evolution kind of takes care of that view because you hit a wall. But, right? <laughs> yes. Either either you wipe yourselves out or you uh, you decide to make a change. Yes. And, and in fact, there's a reversal of the trend in the sense that um, in the sense of all the movements that have been happening, mm-hmm. which are the impulses of the healthy segment of the population trying to reverse the trend. So that gets activated very much like the body's immune system. Mm. Um, Amazing. The immune system gets activated, you know, the more pathogens there are. In fact, some principles of treatment include adding a bit more of the pathogens so that it activates 
the immune system. There is perhaps no more squarely in the headlines component of that than the ever ongoing conversation that we're having as a country about burnout. Uh, it's a, a loaded word. It means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, but Rebecca Coakley, bringing you in here, um, it, it's actually been back in the news in just the past couple of days because there's actually been now an update to the definition of burnout, uh, according to the World Health Organization. Yes, um, this is Rebecca Coakley. The, um, the WHO this last week included burnout as an occupational phenomenon, not as a medical condition, um, in the latest iteration of its revision of the International Classification of Diseases. Um, you know, burnout is a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It, it is characterized by three dimensions. Feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job, or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job, and reduced personal efficacy. Um, you know, and I think we, we've started to see this come up in conversation a lot over the last few years. I think it's sort of in that same space that's occupied by things like toxic stress um, as not something new and trendy, but something we've all sort of known has existed. Um but has been one of those sort of specifically vague terms that people know what it is when they see it or when they're personally experiencing it. Um, but to have it actually defined um, in such a deliberate way uh, and the fact that it, it really they are very deliberate in this definition to talk about this does not apply to describe experiences beyond the workplace. It is strictly a work based condition. Um, so you can't say that you're burned out from playing Guitar Hero or you're burned out from your roommate or you're burned out from your dog. Um, this is really strictly focusing on, you know, the ongoing conversation, I think, around mental well-being in the workplace today. Yeah. And it's this is another great example of a term that gets thrown around um, and used in ways that that also dismiss it pretty significantly. And Valerie, you were talking eloquently before about how people feeling like they have an experience with one version of one type of um, experience, right, or, or um, uh, uh, have maybe had a diagnostic label applied to them at some point or um, have uh, self-diagnosed maybe with symptoms of, of something, and then they all of a sudden think they know the universe of that experience. There's perhaps no more overused term. Um, I'm sure we could come up with some, but there are a few terms as overused as burnout, um, particularly in the Trump era. I do think, um, I think you're absolutely right. I'm hoping, though, I think that for this particular term, this might be a really positive thing. Um, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about a little later um, about some of the very, very real um, things that are attached to mental illness that a lot of times um, things like burnout and toxic stress can exacerbate. Um, but I think what's really interesting about what um, who has done is this, this is a definition that's now in the ICD, like you mentioned. So um, that's, that's a manual that is like a diagnos diagnostic clinician's manual. Um, and I think what this will do is, is, well, what I'm hoping this will do, right, is bring legitimacy to things that we sort of um, in our work culture often joke about or shrug off the ID 
idea of taking a mental health day, right? Um, being seen as some way of like, uh, some, some, non, uh, some invalid way of skipping work or using your sick days or something like that, right? That um, recognizing the reality of burnout will hopefully be something that can be used to make sure that people don't maybe get push, pushed from this non-medical kind of diagnosis of burnout into um, a space where their mental health has been neglected and they have developed mental illness, whether that's acute or, or um, chronic. I know that I'm I am a person with SMI, um, and that is something that I have had pretty much since I can remember, um, which is is difficult for a lot of people because you don't um, – a lot of mental illness becomes um, – either shows itself in sort of late teenage, early adulthood, um, and people, especially with things uh, like depression, we're seeing it a lot more, but people don't really like to think about, you know, a five-year-old walking around that is, you know, depressed, or we read about, you know, young kids um, who have taken their lives, and we think, how can somebody at seven years old want to do that, right? Um, but I, I don't remember life without certain aspects of um, either my personality disorder or my mental illness, and I think that I know, having been a person who has worked in the professional environment, um, the way that this can exacerbate that and the the hospital stays, for example, that maybe I could have avoided if a boss would have taken seriously what it means to be burnt out. And to, for me to say, you know what, I need, I know that we're in the thick of it, but I need a couple days. I mean, for that to be something that's looked at as a legitimate concern and not, um, and not kind of scoffed at or as, as something that I just want to, you know, I just want some vacation time. Um, I, I know from my personal experience could have kept me safe. And I think that there's probably a lot of other people in those situations, um, that whether they have mental illness or not, because we need to maintain mental health, um, find themselves in situations maybe where they're binge drinking, right? Mm -hmm. Which, which could, could turn into, uh, you know, mental illness when we talk about substance abuse, right? Or, um, they're, they're getting home and they're yelling at their kids or they're just not being the person that they want to be as because of, um, us not taking things like toxic stress and burnout seriously. And so hopefully, um, the world world health organization doing this will provide the legitimacy that we all know should have been there this whole time um but hasn't been um well, and i told this is uh Coakley, i totally agree with you on that and i think one of the things that i think this provides a unique opportunity for is uh, as i know we've had this conversation among the three of us and and i've had this conversation with Ballas, um is sort of the the cycle of um movement work and trauma yeah. like how we talk about how nobody even though I actually had somebody like publicly argue with me about this in the last month. Um, we, nobody comes to movement work without having experienced some sort of trauma in their lives. They want to make something better because of some wrong that they've either witnessed or that they've experienced in a lot of cases. And at the same time, doing this work is traumatizing as hell. Mm -hmm. And. The, sort of the the ongoing cycle of that, you know, I think there's any number of folks I know across movements, not just in the disability space or the mental illness space, but also um, in the immigration space, um, you know, where they're constantly fighting for their ability to be present in the country and keeping families together uh, for our siblings in the trans space and the, tra and the LGBT movement that are really struggling right now. And to really sort of legitimize what they're experiencing in this space. I think you also see it with people who, um, with the whole conversation around sabbaticals. Yes. 
and the importance of sabbaticals for workplaces that say we care about, you know, we care about our employees. We practice what we preach. Um, you know, and then somebody asks for a sabbatical and people act like they're sitting around eating bonbons and watching a 12 hour Golden Girls marathon, you know, and maybe they are. And that's what somebody needs to do to decompress. Um, but until we start taking a lot of these things seriously, we're going to continue, as you said, to see folks substance misuse, to see folks um, experience less than satisfactory relationships with loved ones. Um, you know, and as you said, like that, that, that road between burnout and SMI could really be prevented or could be um, the likelihood of it transitioning from burnout to SMI. There are things that could be done in a workplace in terms of taking things more seriously and taking the necessary steps to create a more supportive workplace um, that could have a very positive impact in those spaces. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly, indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. The question for today is, are you feeling climate grief? And Christine, why don't you talk a little bit about what's going on in the Amazon rainforest right now? Yeah, so you and I were chatting uh, a little bit earlier about the headlines that we've seen about uh, basically the Amazon's on fire. Uh, I'm just looking at the headline here. The Amazon fire and the smoke can be seen from space. It's been burning for weeks and increasing uh, deforestation. So when we think about grief, that uh, headline can bring up a lot of sadness for those of us who feel intensely what's going on with the earth. Now, for people who uh, haven't tuned in yet to the enormity of what's going on, and those aren't the people that would be... Uh, really disturbed by that headline, but uh, a lot of us have been feeling grief about the future for a long time, and this kind of headline, when it comes up, it's easy to 
just shove that sadness uh, down again into that. It's kind of a pool of sadness until you start processing uh, these kinds of deep emotions. It's just easier to shove it down and not deal with it. So I don't know what your experience uh, of it is, Rose, if you want to speak to that a bit. Well, this will be a little bit out there for some of our listeners, but I, in recent years, have come to know that I am an empath. And for people who don't know what that is, it's just someone who feels things very intensely, but maybe picks up on energy that is not my own. It's not my own sadness, but it's the collective sadness. Um, Or you can liken it to going into a room and every room that you go into has a certain energy with the people that are in there. Um, sometimes you'll feel really uplifted by the just walking in the room. And other times you'll leave after being with people for a few hours and you feel that heaviness. So that's picking up on other people's emotions. Um, and if you extrapolate that, um, for me, I've been feeling climate grief for a while now. Um, it's just an intense sadness about what's going on in our world and um, and I have to do the check-in of, is this my sadness? And it, the message basically comes back to me that, no, it's information. It's what's going on. And I don't know if it's other people picking up on the sadness. I'm feeling their sadness or if I'm actually feeling Mother Earth's sadness for the fact that she's she's dying. We're, we're, we're hurting her. We're, the fires are, are, are changing her landscape. It's changing our air. Um, so uh, the interesting thing is that Americans, I believe, are, are becoming familiar with how climate change affects their physical health, right? Asthma, allergies, maybe stress from heat. There's foodborne illnesses, waterborne illnesses, and we're, we're beginning to recognize that all of those things are related to climate, but we are just now beginning to feel the effects, or I think we're just now beginning to feel the effects um, on our mental health. And it, it, the, the uncertainty of our future for us, for our children, for our grandchildren, um, creates a stress of its own. And that can lead to depression and anxiety. And um, it's a strain on community relationships, on individual relationships. Um, And perhaps makes people more aggressive. I don't know. Really interesting that you're talking about all of those effects because I have in my hand something that was produced in February of 2012. So let's see. It was uh, put out by the National Wildlife Federation Climate Education Program, and it came out of a national forum and research project. And it looks like uh, Dr. Lisa Van Susteren, who's a forensic psychiatrist, uh, co-wrote it with uh, Kevin Coyle. So it's the psychological effects of global warming in the United States. And the subheading in is why the U.S. mental health care system is not adequately prepared. So this is an executive summary. 
And I came across it back in 2016 when I was getting ready to present on climate trauma and uh, the energy medicine technique that uh, I use in my practice, at least one of them, which is uh, EFT or emotional freedom technique. So I did a workshop in 2016 at... uh, the Association for Comprehensive Energy Psychology in, uh, in in California that year, but on climate trauma and uh, using EFT to um, address that. And so I, I came across this uh, summary, uh, really well done. We can put a link in uh, on our on our page. Um, and I actually spoke with Dr. Van Susteren in the lead up uh, to my presentation, and she's. Uh, been trained also by uh, Al Gore. She's a climate reality presenter and she's been working on this. Yeah, she's been working on this for years and she is persistent. I don't know. I posted it uh, on my Facebook page, my personal one, but maybe we can repost it on the Earth Feels. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recently, there was a video with her and Jack Black talking about this very thing, climate grief. And... um, it was it's poignant and funny um and it addresses exactly uh, this he's on a on a lawn chair uh, they're out and outside talking about um why he's feeling sad these days so uh, this report though says climate change will become top of mind uh in the future some americans already are or will soon experience anxiety about global warming and its effects on us, our loved ones, our ecosystems, and our lifestyle. This anxiety will increase as reports of the seriousness of our condition become more clear and more stark. Despite alarming evidence that environmental conditions are worsening, a majority of Americans do not feel much conscious unease about global warming. And and it goes on. But bear in mind, this is seven years ago. So that's interesting because um, in doing research for today's podcast, I was reading um, some other Yale studies, which Yale has a, has a great department. I'll have to, we'll have to put a link into that. um, That's doing a lot of um, interesting work around what's going on for climate. And they do a lot of surveys. And according to a survey that was done this year, um, the anxiety level in the U S is rising over, over, um, climate. 62% of people surveyed said they were at least somewhat worried about the climate, and that's up from 49% in 2010. And the rate of those who were described who d- described themselves as very worried um, is now 21%, which is which doesn't seem like that much, but that's double the rate of a similar study in 2015. So in four years, the pe- people have the people that are very concerned have doubled. And the most, the the scariest part to me was, or the most, um, I don't even know what the word is. Only 6% said humans can or will reduce global warming. So there's, there's the, the nut, right? That there's the, the, the stressor, the anxiety, the, the depression causing is only 6% of Americans believe that humans can and will because we need the political will to make a change. So, um, wow. So that means 94% of your fellow citizens 
don't think that we will make the changes, even if they recognize how important those changes mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. And it probably isn't that much different in Canada and uh, in other countries uh, around the world, I would imagine. Alan Francis's book, Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And I want to end with a, a sort of dip into a, a big section of your book, which is on the pursuit of happiness and how that ties into this kind of doomsday view that, you know, we are off the rails, that there are so many of these existential crises about to hit us. Uh, so where does the pursuit of happiness fall in? Well, we're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. It, it doesn't come from um, Amazon or a shopping mall. It doesn't come from uh, going to a Trump hotel. It doesn't come from uh, consumerism. That all the studies show that, that happiness is related most to the things that made us happy 50,000 years ago. Uh, love, family, friends, nature. And I think what we have to do as a country is think less about how much we can consume and, and more about how we can have develop relationships with people that, that are satisfying. Um, it, it's an emptiness in ourselves to feel that the only way we can feel happy is by buying more stuff. Donald Trump represents in pure form everything that's wrong with America. And I'm hopeful that his presenting it in so grotesque a light will get people back to the basics of what's important. And I, I'm hopeful that he doesn't divide us, that people don't feel that because someone is a Trump supporter, we can't be their friend or marry them or um, have a civil discussion with them. I think this is a temporary American insanity and that we can get back to uh, on the tracks towards being the kind of country that the Founding Fathers hoped we would be. We've just heard clips today, starting with Hidden Brain, speaking with Sheldon Solomon on why thoughts of death draw us to charismatic authoritarians. The Chauncey DeVega Show talked with Dr. Brandy Lee on the mental impact of living under Trump. Warm Regards discussed climate anxiety with Renee Lertzman. Trumpcast also spoke with Dr. Brandy Lee about what made some people susceptible to Trump's message and the violent results of Republican presidencies. Off-Kilter discussed burnout both at work and with the addition of political pressures, especially for those most impacted. Earth Feels explained the widespread nature of climate grief and anxiety. And finally, we just heard inquiring minds pointing toward the direction we should go to look for happiness. Members this week will hear additional clips on taking personal action on climate change with a focus on mental health, uh, more on the mental health of Trump himself and his followers. And we've been having a discussion on the bonus show, myself and the members, about the death of satire in the age of Trump, and about political comedy in general. Most recently, I said that I'm not a big fan of jokes about people's appearances. You know, like, 
Donald Trump and John Boehner are orange. Mitch McConnell looks like a turtle. I know, I get it. I understand the instinct. I'm just not a fan. I don't think that's the direction we should go. And uh, Aaron from Philly, who you're going to hear from again today, regular caller, called in with what she thinks is the only funny joke about politicians' color. So members should look forward to that. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we'll hear from you. Uh, It's either feast or famine around here. So we had an episode with no voicemails and we are definitely making up for it today. Hey, this is Heather from Texas. I was just listening to your episode on 9-11 and you mentioned how you could kind of chart your life pre-9-11. You were a child, post-9-11, you were an adult. For me, you know, I was a child both before and after. I was eight when 9-11 happened. I remember the day it happened. I remember all the teachers getting freaked out and whispering and going home and my mom being just super anxious because my sister lived in Dallas at the time for college and, you know, no one knew where the next attack was going to be and all the traffic out of Dallas, she couldn't get out. It was just, it was very tense. It was very anxious. It was very emotional. I remember crying. I remember crying for all the people that died. I don't know that I really understood just how many people died, but I I did feel emotional about it. I remember the patriotic and religious fervor that came after, all the songs, flags everywhere, you know, this kind of sense that, you know, America uh, is perfect. I remember definitely... You know, the whole America's the best country in the world, that was definitely something I remember becoming much more prevalent after 9-11. I don't remember what things were like before 9-11 being that much different, but I definitely remember the things that changed after. I remember being afraid. I remember wondering why these Muslims hated America so much. But luckily this was a case where the Internet was really becoming much more prevalent and it became a tool for knowledge. So when I got into my preteen and teen years, I did a lot more research trying to figure out why we were targeted. And so this was a time of chat rooms. I would go into uh, a chat room that I knew of that was for people who worshipped Islam. And I you know, would just sit there and I would just watch their conversations. But I just wanted to see you know, if they would reveal their secrets of why they hated us. And I don't think they ever talked about that. They talked about boring stuff like songs they liked and you know, recipes, the food they liked, of just boring. And sometimes not even that. Sometimes it was just boring internet talk about nothing. I did end up making a friend who, you know, explained a lot of Islam for me uh, because I knew nothing about it. It was just this foreign alien religion that hated me as an American and all Americans and uh, kind of broke it down for me, uh, talked of, you know, told me about the pillars of Islam, about their holidays, about their major beliefs. Blew my friggin' mind when I learned that Islam is based off the same stories, most of the same stories as Christianity and Judaism. Like, mind blown in my little young head, because in my mind, this was something completely different. And then to learn that not only do they have the same stories and same people with a slightly different name variant, 
but like they have Jesus in their Bible and their in their Quran as well. And I was, it was just astounding to me. And, and that was about the time, you know, where it kind of clicked into place that this was just a religion, just like Christianity. It could have many different interpretations. It could have use for good. It could have use for evil. Most of the worshippers were just regular people living regular lives. And, you know, then I started doing more research as well on America's role in the world, in the history. And, you know, started to kind of see the picture that we were not the perfect heroes that, you know, we'd kind of been taught growing up, kind of learning about our policies in other countries that had caused a lot of issues. Not saying that we were evil, but just seeing how we definitely did not make the best choices. I've also seen in Texas a lot of the anti-Islamic rhetoric from my own family. Horrible, horrible things being said. And this belief, this belief still that Muslims just hate Americans, even still. Like, I have a family member who just insists that every Muslim person is a, in America is a sleeper agent, just waiting for their opportunity you know, kill as many Americans as they can, and no conversation I have with this person will convince them otherwise. It's sad. On the one hand, I hate that this ever happened. On the other hand, it happening at a time in my life where I still had the mind to question things and to be curious and to not just accept everything that was being given to me has really shaped who I am as a person. So, thought I would you know, share my experience since you shared yours. I thank you so much for everything you do. I really enjoyed this, this podcast. I, I enjoy this episode because it does speak a lot to my growing up and how it shaped my life. Thank you so much for everything you do. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in regarding episode 1307 the melting pot, specifically uh, the last clip you played and your commentary about racism and the restaurant example. I have a office mate that I've been sharing an office with for quite some time. He's a generation younger than me, and I am a white, privileged male American from the suburbs, and he is a black person from downtown city that we work in. And so we often have interesting conversations about racism and intersectionality and income and equality and so forth. And so he is not a listener of the show. I've tried, but uh, listening is not his thing in general. Nothing personal about your show. But I played that clip and the dynamics afterwards, and we had a wonderful conversation. It was a great discussion about different aspects of black culture, some things that people refer to each other in black culture that you know outside of that is is not acceptable and interesting conversations but in reference to your analogy of the restaurant we were both talking about how right on that is and what a perfect example that is to to explain to people and to share to people and and could be an eye-opener for people that would not necessarily understand that so you hit a home run there it was it was right on and uh thank you for sharing that it was great stay awesome Hi, Jay. Aaron from Philly calling in with a rare message for the main show since you said you're a little low on those. And anyway, I 
had a couple thoughts. This is for the episode uh, about the 9-11 retrospective that you did this past weekend. I don't have the number in front of me. And I had a couple of different thoughts about it. First, your introduction to it, talking about how it, at this point in time, it, it really hit at the midpoint of your life and the difference of people who can remember before and after. I think there are really two events that occurred pretty close by each other around that time that have defined so much of how we live today. And we've just never dealt with them as a country. It Obviously, 9-11 is the bigger one in some ways, but also it was just two years before in May of 99, which was my senior year of high school, that the Columbine shooting happened. And obviously, it's 20 years later, and we're still dealing with that or refusing to deal with that in an appropriate way. And I mean, that, that just... It, it baffles me, you know, what, what do we do? We, well, we, uh, let's do lockdown drills and that's the best we can possibly do about, uh, you know, gun violence in schools and, oh, we had a terrorist attack in the U S. So what do we do? Oh, we'll launch a global war covertly and spy on everybody in America. And that's just the best we can possibly do. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting how those two years have gone on to define the next two decades of life in the U.S. And now here we are. So that's not so great. And the other thing I wanted to comment on was the segment from, I believe it was the real news. First of all, I, I didn't catch the names. I don't know if they were mentioned in the clip, but there was the one person you kept referring to Russiagate, I don't think that comment has aged well this past week. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those funny things where both the left and the right kept referring, uh, sort of elements of the left and the right, I should say, kept referring to the idea that, oh, everything about Russia was just a hoax or a distraction and, and so on. So, well, I <laughs> guess we know that's not true. But also, more specifically, I kind of took exception to his take at the end where he said, oh, well, even AOC fell into this trap of saying it was wrong for Trump to to be getting cozy with dictators because basically look at American history, look at things like the overthrow of Allende in Chile and so on. And that was just, to me, a startlingly unprincipled take on world history. And, you know, the, the idea that, well, we've done bad things in the U.S., so we don't have the right to say that other people shouldn't do bad things. I mean, that's, to me, that's just not how it works. It feels very morally relative in a way that I'm not comfortable with that, you know, yes, we need to get our own house in order, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be pointing out when other people have their houses out of order. And more to the point, talking about the fact that, you know, talking about people who grew up post 9-11, they don't really remember before, that describes AOC to a T. She's not 30 yet and probably doesn't remember much of what the world was like before uh, the current world order was established in 2001 to 2003. So to say, well, we did these bad things 40 years ago and, you know, and honestly, yes, continue to do them now, 
means we can't criticize Orban or Erdogan or Kim in North Korea or whatever. That's that can't be the way the world works. We can't just say, well, until we're perfect, we can't criticize everybody else. I mean, that's we've got to do both and we've got to do both at the same time. We've got to show that we're cleaning up our house and we have to continue to criticize other people other countries whose houses aren't in order. And I just, that clip really didn't sit well with me. So that's my take. I'll be interested to hear what anyone else might have to say about it and keep doing what you do. Stay awesome. Hey Jay, sounds like you got a bit of a head start on the mental health episode at the tail end of the 9-11 show. There was a tweet going around a little while ago authored by an Onion contributor named Dan Sheehan. He said at first, presumably speaking from the perspective of a boomer, why do millennials complain all the time? And the response was, I, I don't know, man. We watched 2,000 people die on live TV when we were 10, and then literally nothing ever got better. Now, I can't say 9-11 is the crux of why I deal with major depression and anxiety today, but I'm sure it's going to help. This is Corey from New Jersey. I've called before talking about my own mental health and was excited to hear it would be a subject you're tackling soon. The show has made me feel all sorts of ways, and I understand why some have chosen to stop in this age, but for all the terrible realities you bring to our ears. I've always found an underlying hope in listening to you and your message and your selections. And I also take a lot of solace in knowing that I'm not alone in my feelings. And at the end of the day, I do believe we are on the right side of history. And I think we're going to win. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And uh, just thanks again to everyone who called in. It's like an all-star lineup uh, of voicemails today. Uh, we always get interesting perspectives from Heather in Texas. Uh, Alan is always there to tell me when I've done something right. Aaron is always there to set me straight. And it's always good to hear from Corey in New Jersey to uh, hear that he's still hanging in there. Uh, he, he always has really inspiring messages, even um, you know, even, even though he's dealing with his own depression and issues, it's great to hear his perspective on how the show is impacting him. So, so just again, huge thanks to everyone who called in and there will be more on mental health to come. So Corey can look forward to that a few weeks though, you know, give, give me a couple of weeks uh, to, to get that out, which brings me to my big announcement that I mentioned in the beginning of the show. So, you know, we've been talking uh, just in today's episode, we talked about burnout and, uh, and, and, you know, the mental health, not just from politics, but from work. And of course, my work is politics. So I'm getting it from, from two different directions. And I realized, or I've been slowly realizing over the last several years that I don't take enough vacation time. 
I uh, made this show, uh, well, I, I started the show in 2006. It became my job in 2010. That, so then a hobby becomes a job. And I just thought, like, cool, I never have to work again because my hobby is my job. But of course, everyone who is self-employed, even if they do the thing that they love that was their hobby, will tell you, no, 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 it, it becomes a job. It's a job. And uh, so back in 2010, I just thought to myself, all right, I guess this is what I do now forever, all the time, every week. And I, I, I never felt secure to take vacation time only in the holidays, a week for Christmas, New Year's, half a week for Thanksgiving, and then scattershot throughout the rest. Like may and those scattershot holidays were like, I'm going to collapse if I don't take time off. And so I would take some time off. But other than that, like no planned vacations, no like can't wait for my two week break or anything like that, just nothing. And so I've gone for, you know, about 10 years straight without any real vacation because, you know, as you might imagine, taking a vacation for, you know, my longest vacation of the year is a week, Christmas, New Year's. But come on, we all know that's not a real vacation. I'm spending time with family. You can't really be on vacation if you're spending time with family. So um, what the, the major realization I had a few weeks ago was how to take vacation. Because I, I know it sounds simple, like, okay, but you you run the show, right? Just take time off. Just tell the audience you're going to take time off. But as I said, I was always insecure about that. I got all these people paying monthly to support the show because they appreciate the show and they get value from it. So, like, what am I just going to tell them? Sorry, not, not, not this month. You know, you only get three quarters or half of what you signed up for. And so I just never felt comfortable with it. And the realization I had was, well, why don't you just ask? So that's what I did. I asked the members. I explained the situation. I said, here's how long I've been doing this. Here's how much vacation time I take. I ran down a list of about a dozen countries in the world and all of their time off policies, their national, federal, legal time off policies. Of course, the United States doesn't have anything like that. Pretty much every other country in the world does. So I ran down the list and I said, what do you, the members, what do you think makes sense? And the votes rolled in and the results surprised me. Almost 50%, 44% or so voted for six weeks of vacation. Keeping in mind, that includes all the federal holidays. So federal holidays by themselves, that's like two weeks. So basically they said, take a month off, plus take all your federal holidays that you deserve. And then almost the exact same number of people, another 44%, voted for eight weeks of vacation. So I figure, okay, it's pretty clear. We're going to split the difference. The plan going forward, the big announcement, is that we're going to start taking vacation time. We're going to start taking care of ourselves, working on some mental health, some self-care, uh, doing all the things we preach. We're finally going to turn inwardly and and uh, maintain our own mental health so that we can sing its praises even more and, and be 
better equipped to do the show and more energized to do the show and all of those things. And just like survive in this world. How about that? We're going to take care of our mental health so that we can live better lives and survive better in this world. And also it will probably help us with the show, but that's sort of a side benefit. We're not taking vacation so we can be better employees and better workers. We're taking time off so we can be better humans, which will make us better at everything we do work included. So, uh, that's the uh, the broad scope big announcement. Uh, quick follow up. I'm taking a vacation next week. So we have one more new episode coming up and then gone for a week. Uh, this will be our first non holiday, non family visiting week long vacation that I've maybe ever taken. I, I had much better vacation time back when I had a real job working at a nonprofit making no money, but they knew, hey, you know, we we work our employees so hard and we ask them to come in on weekends and do special things. So they had a very generous, uh, you know, vacation plan, time off plan. And I've never had better vacation than then. The irony being, now I'm in charge. Why didn't I give myself as good of a vacation plan as someone else decided to give me 10 years ago? So that that's the news. I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. As I said, more mental health episodes are coming out, uh, or at least one I have planned, which is going to focus even more on sort of the economic side of mental health. And boy, when I was doing the preliminary research for that, boy, did that hit home. So uh, So look forward to that. Uh, as I said, look forward to one more new episode before vacation. And then, you know, as we go forward, we'll talk about the other planned blocks of time that I that I have in mind to take off. But even though I've already thanked them, thanks to all the members who engaged in the poll and gave their input or, or sent me emails or voicemails encouraging me to take more time off, it, uh, you know, made all the difference and, and made it possible and Uh, No one is looking forward to that more than me. And with that, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.